all this week, we've been looking back at the top stories of 2017 on Smart Talk. The opioid crisis continues to grow as the number of people dying of heroin and now fentanyl overdoses has increased in Pennsylvania. One of the Smart Talk programs that portrayed the epidemic from witnesses came last April. We talk about this issue often, but sometimes it's from a wide angle. Today, we have two people who see it up close and personal on a daily basis. Joining us in the studio today, York County Coroner Pam Gay. Ms. Gay, welcome to the program. Thank you. Good to be here. Also joining us is Andrew Gilger, who is a paramedic, performance improvement lieutenant at Lancaster EMS. Mr. Gilger, welcome to the program. Morning, Scott. If you have a question or comment, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at org. Pam Gay, I'm going to start with you. As I just said in the introduction, I mean, we talk about this very often on this program and our newscast. I mean, it has reached epidemic proportions across the country, but you see it, you see the results of it on a daily basis. How bad is it out there? Well, it's it's still very bad, and uh, we think it will be for some time yet, um, unfortunately. Um, and, but you got to remember, this problem didn't happen overnight. This was um, largely connected to the prescription drug problem that you um, that you referenced, uh, which was ten to fifteen years in the making, basically. Um, we've created a society, unfortunately, that was using these drugs that were really intended originally for end-of-life care. Um, and so what, what was happening is there were more restrictions being placed on those drugs and um, crackdown on uh, and, and also the price going up. People um, reverted to heroin. It was just uh, less expensive, more easily available. Uh, and so that's what we have right now. Uh, uh, you know, I came into office in 2014. Our heroin deaths had been 17 the year before slowly creeping up from, you know, two years before that. But um, definitely we, you know, I walked right into the epidemic because by the end of 2014, we were at 62 heroin-related deaths. So uh, hardly any fentanyl back then that first year. Uh, Fentanyl started being mixed in in 2015, and now we see fentanyl in almost all of our heroin-related deaths. Almost all of them. Almost all of them, yeah. So You're right. You did walk right into it, but you've been very outspoken, been one of the leaders on this issue talking about it. Uh, So has that been the big change, fentanyl? I mean, obviously, a change is that we're seeing more, but is fentanyl? And explain why, for those who may not be uh, familiar with this, why fentanyl is so dangerous. Well, fentanyl itself um, is used, obviously, in in a hospital setting, um, that type of fentanyl. This is a different fentanyl. Uh, It's used for anesthesia and pain management, uh, I mean, along with anesthesia and pain and as a pain management in the hospital setting. Um, But also, um, this fentanyl is not standardized. This is street fentanyl. Um, And so um, it's, you know, there's no guarantee. And so it's, it's approximately 50 to 100 times stronger than morphine, dozens of times, if not 50 times stronger than heroin. Um, and so it can, uh, you know, it can, it can kill. Um, it's, it's so much more potent. It, you know, it does much the same thing. It slows the respiratory center of the brain, uh, the, tells the brain to stop breathing, and they eventually, you know, quickly stop breathing. Um, we, we have people who still who die with a needle in their arm. Uh, sometimes there's fluid in that needle still. Um, that's how quick this works. They uh, they die slumped over in whatever you know sitting position they were, and even if they were breathing slowly when they were slumped over, they're not able to even raise themselves up to start breathing again, and they die in that position. So the psychology behind this is interesting. In that uh, you know, people if they are thinking straight, 
uh, would say, well, I'm going to stay away from that because, you know, it can kill me. But the psychology is that you want to get, I say you, meaning the people who are using, want to get higher, right? Well, they do initially. And that's kind of the stereotype that I had in my mind because I knew nothing, hardly anything about heroin when I took this job. I was a nurse, but I had never really worked around heroin um, addicts that much. Um, and so it was, you know, you would think that that would be the common sense thing. But what's happening is there's a there's an entire chemistry in their brain that um, after that first high or two, they don't really get that high anymore. They're trying to use from to keep from being sick. Their withdrawal is so intense that they're using to keep from being sick. And most of them will tell you that's what they were doing, the ones that survive. Um, and so the chemistry of that brain is is totally distorted um, because you know that that particular chemical you know the heroin itself is what's causing a, a huge um, uh, release in the dopamine receptors that which would be the pleasure receptors in our brain um, and and for some people um, you know they may not get that same intense uh, you know high from 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 the heroin but for many people they do and so um that particular chemistry is what's taking place and it's really hard to find anything that's going to top that so um they basically use to try and get that you know release um but at the same time um you know most of them will tell you as they're using you know even after a few days they're using mostly just to keep from with the the withdrawal so Mm -hmm. You said that uh, in York County you went from uh, 17 to 62. Mm-hmm. How about so far this year? Well, this year so far uh, has we're trending uh, much higher. Um, unfortunately, um, uh, we had by the uh, end of February we had already had 30 suspected heroin deaths, which uh, we had 76 all year last year. Um, at this point, we have 26 confirmed, another 17 that we're waiting on that are probably going to come back uh, positive. Um, so it has uh, thankfully slowed a little bit over the last month or so, uh, but that's still uh, you know approximately 43. Um, till it's all said and done and they come back um, that, um, you know, you know, 76 all year last year. So um, that's pretty uh, it definitely picked up. And I know that I know that Lancaster has picked up, too, because I just saw that they had 50 in the first three months. Yeah. So. And we're going to talk about Lancaster and, and really the much many of these statistics hold true for our whole listening area. I mean, some counties are, are, are bigger than others, have a bigger population. Um, but before we move on to that on the ground, what what we see um, on the ground and that the uh, paramedics see, um, I remember when you did come into office and you started talking about this. At the time, I thought to myself, okay, in, in your county, uh, you were out there as one of the leaders. There were people in the district attorney's office. You had a drug task force. Uh, that there was a lot of talk about this and ways to stop it. You know, education. We often hear that that's the way that this is going to slow down. I don't know if we'll completely stop, but at least if people are educated, maybe they don't start in the first place. So here we are, three years later, and we're trending upward. So I'm not saying the education hasn't worked, but I have to say I'm a little bit surprised that it hasn't slowed down because we've been talking about it so much. Again, I would uh, go back to the whole prescription drug problem. I think um, you know you got to remember that that was brewing uh, in in the time uh, time frame of those ten to fifteen years, and so uh, we do believe that it's not going to significantly reverse at this point, at least for a few years. Um, and, and part of that problem is, too, that there's this constant flow. Now you have fentanyl coming in through Mexico, you know, uh, as well as heroin. Um, and so 
um, I think that's a large part of it. The supply is just constantly flowing. Um, we, uh, we've heard that sometimes with the legalization of marijuana in some of the states, it's, it's caused the drug traffickers to revert more to the heroin because that's where they're getting their money, uh, the heroin and the fentanyl. So um, there's all kinds of ways to combat this. Um, but, yeah, it's a constant battle because you have to really hit it from as many angles as you can. And so we're still in York working hard with the education. We've done approximately 130, 140 presentations in the last two and a half years um, throughout the community. Um, we're still working with our Heron Task Force, which is now the York Opioid Collaborative, and trying to figure out ways to um, get naloxone into people's hands, how to find the gaps in treatment, how to get people better access to treatment. And we're still working with law enforcement to equip them with all the naloxone that they need, uh, as well as educating our uh, prescribers in the community. We have two entities, Wellspan and OSS, who are doing a terrific job with really decreasing their prescribing and changing their practices and making their um, patients more accountable and, and all of that. All of those things combined, um, you know, we're really working hard to to you know help the addict too to get the help that they need so you know something you just mentioned i think it's worth repeating uh one of the reasons we did this show is lancaster county district attorney craig steadman was on the program a few weeks ago we were talking about a different aspect of this and he mentioned that to me off the air about the the kind of the side effect if you will of states legalizing marijuana for recreational use is that uh, you know a lot of people over the years have said well you know if we legalize this the state takes some money for in taxes that uh, you know you won't have the drug trade you did you you have now, but he mentioned that one of the things that is happening is that though in those states where marijuana has been legalized, that the the dealers who are selling marijuana are just what you said now turning to heroin and the other harder drugs to make their money. That's what I've heard. I, I'm not with the district attorney's office in York, but um, that is what we're hearing. And I will say that um, we worry about that in the coroner's office as well as local law enforcement because we do believe it's a gateway. And, um, you know, I can show you all kinds of data that show that most of my decedents uh, have mar- many of them have marijuana in their system when they've been using the heroin or the fentanyl. Not all of them, but many of them. And many of our traffic crashes involve marijuana. So uh, it's definitely leading to poor decision making, just like alcohol does. Um, and we have deep concerns that, um, you know, once marijuana is legalized, that our problems are just going to intensify. Um, so, Andrew Gilger is a paramedic and uh, he is performance or your title, performance improvement lieutenant with Lancaster EMS. As I mentioned, District Attorney Stedman on the program a few weeks ago, and he actually suggested this. He said, you know, if you really want to talk to people who see this every day, talk to our paramedics, talk to our first responders, because they do see it all. So I'll start with kind of a broad question to you. What have you seen? Well, an increase is, uh, as my counterpart here said, over the last number of years, um, steadily increasing numbers for us personally. Over the last year or so, um, I couldn't count the number of overdoses that I've gone on and I'm only running on the truck a couple days a week in conjunction with my administrative duties, Uh, but we're seeing repeat offenders. We're seeing people back two, three, four times, Um, some of them making it through that excursion uh, and some of them not. Um, I looked up some stats late late last week just to kind of, you know, prep for today and uh, found one gentleman that we were out for three times and the fourth time he was dead. Um, So we're seeing that more and more every day. 
See, now, you know, one thing that I mentioned in the introduction that has been a game changer to a degree is naloxone, uh, that you are equipped, most first, I don't know if I say most, but many first responders across the state are equipped with uh, this this antidote that can, you know, literally be bring people back from the dead. You know, I won't say it was an argument against it, but a warning was that you bring these people who are overdosing back, they're going to go right and without a treatment option or a way to force them into treatment, that they're going to keep doing it over and over and over. And you found that. Well, and it's true. And there, there are steps being taken even now to try and get ahead of that. Um, we've started um, carrying pamphlets from a specific organization down in Lancaster County that offers treatment, um, giving them to people on the way into the hospital. Um, there are plans in place to start uh, a program when we call our reports into the hospital to notify the receiving facility um, that we're coming in with a, a revived overdose um, that has given us permission to get counseling for them, essentially. And they'll have a counselor in the emergency department at some point within a short period of time to start talking to them. So there are other steps going on, other things happening to try and combat it. Um, but, you know, you're right. It's it's. It's an evil thing, man. When it gets a hold of people, um, it doesn't want to let go. You know, I don't want to get too graphic here, but because you have witnessed this, when someone is overdosed, what's it look like? I know that's a... Sometimes, <laughs> yeah. Well, it depends. Um, if they're really, really overdosed, they could look pretty close to dead. Um, honestly, breathing maybe two, three, four times a minute, um, you know, and a gasping kind of agonal breathing. So, um, you know, there's a short amount of time, you know, that you have to open an airway, give them some oxygen, control their, their airway and breathe for them and administer the Narcan, you know, to pull them back up and start them breathing again. Breathing is good. It's <laughs> one of those things that we all have to do. Yeah. And, um, you know, the... The you know the respiratory depression is what really kills people. Yeah, that's what I, is is that what you find most of the time that uh, overdoses uh, that it is they stop breathing and the mm -hmm. Narcan. Yes, sir. Narcan is the name brand for naloxone. Naloxone, yeah. What mo most people use, but it usually is it a respiratory thing that uh, kills them? Yeah, and if they go four to six minutes without proper oxygen, they're going to have irreversible brain damage. So. Uh, if not death. So, um, yeah, so, you have a very narrow window. There are certainly consequences that may even be, you know, some people would consider worse than death, you know, because mm -hmm. if you have that irreversible brain damage, you end up in a vegetative state or something. And these are typically younger people. Do you recognize overdose as soon as you see? I mean, a lot of times it's, it sounds as if there may be somebody still with the obvious. Yeah. Um, yeah. Typically we do. I mean, it's a very set group of symptoms now there are some you know always some outliers but a lot of times you're finding drug packaging equipment you know or paraphernalia close by needles obvious you know use of some kind or if they're with somebody that knows them and they know that they're an addict they know that they use and they'll pass that information along to us uh, heroin uh, as we've established heroin and now laced with fentanyl uh, has that made it even more difficult? Has that changed this at all? Oh, absolutely. The more potent the drug, um, I mean, there are patients that we don't have enough Narcan in our bag to get them up and functioning again or, you know, even get them breathing adequately again. 
We have to go to, you know, managing their airway, breathing for them on the way into the hospital, even though we're giving them these drugs to try and reverse the narcotics. Um, it's a, it's potent. And I don't think some folks understand how potent, you know, or they think, oh, good, it's a really good batch. And, you know, we'll do a little more and they end up down and out. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Our conversation on witnessing the opioid epidemic up close continues. You got to remember, you you can combat that withdrawal, but you're still dealing with the the mind that's not totally cured and not ready to go into total sobriety quite often needs some you know counseling support all kinds of things to help them get to that point where they can maintain sobriety for more than 48 hours for more than the next four days um, that they won't have triggers that cause them to start using again and that takes sometimes years and months i mean months and years and and it's just hard to do in, in an overnight experience or two-day experience there are some drugs now being used to to f- fight addiction uh, and you mentioned me when we were off the air that you didn't used to think they were effective, but you're changing your mind on that. Well, I, I, I like a lot of people, as a nurse, had not worked around uh, addiction that much, although I had experience in my own family, not heroin addiction, but um, my niece had been addicted to, to crack and alcohol. I raised her children for five years, so I learned quickly about addiction um, about 10 years before I took office. Um, but. I, I really did have in my mind that with heroin, you're replacing one thing with another with methadone. I, I have had a whole enlightenment uh, since I became coroner uh, because what we were seeing is all these heroin deaths were coming across our deaths. Uh, the toxicologies were showing us over and over again that these, these individuals had died just out of rehab, just out of prison, uh, just out of a recovery house or maybe in a recovery house. Um, and they were they had tried to be abstinent for a period of time, and what was happening is they used once or twice, and as I said, they have no tolerance and they die. So I, I really rarely saw people dying from methadone and suboxone, uh, and, and we still don't. I'm not saying that it doesn't happen, but it's really rare. Um, and many of them, if they do die from that, it's, it's illegally obtained or they're not in part of a program or a clinic. Um, and so what it just made sense to us that methadone and suboxone seem to be working for some people as a way to get to their sobriety. And now Vivitrol is out there, too. And we're using Vivitrol as a pilot program in our prison for reentry um, as they go back into society. And um, we're having some early success with that here in York, and we're, we're hoping that that continues. So we're definitely big proponents of medication-assisted treatment for some individuals. And we realized that actually for some people, a year later, their chances of survival are so much better than if they go through an abstinence-only program and not, you know, and then use that once or twice and die. And so that's that's our concern. We need to look at all approaches. Abstinence is great for some individuals, but for this particular heroin addiction in your county, it's not working so well. We have to we have to be open to decreasing that stigma of medication-assisted treatment. Uh, Andy. You know, I hate to have to ask you these on-the-ground kind of questions, okay. but, uh, you know, again, I, I said in the introduction that so often we talk about this, it almost seems like an academic discussion because either we've never witnessed it, we've never, we don't know someone who has died of a heroin overdose, although there are many more people because there are more people dying who know of people like that. But as far as someone going through withdrawal symptoms, I mean, do you have, have you treated people, I mean, you've been called to a scene where someone is going through withdrawal, and I don't even know how you treat them at that point. Well, it's supportive treatment in any situation like that. Um, and, you know, honestly, the caller mentioned it, 
if you give maybe too much Narcan too fast, you can actually put people into withdrawal just by giving them the Narcan. Our goal when we're waking people up is just that, bring the respiratory rate up, wake them up enough that we can deal with them but not blast them so we block every bit of the narcotic in their system and put them into withdrawal, then they start vomiting all over the place and things get ugly pretty quick. Treating the withdrawal part of it is is really more supportive care. I mean, there's not anything that we're going to do acutely unless, of course, you know, they would have seizures or something like that that we could give other medications to treat. I said that Narcan has uh, been a game changer. Is that accurate? Well, you know, the availability in Narcan, I think, yes, it has. Um, we've carried Narcan. I mean, it was invented in the late 60s, early 70s, and we, I, it's always been part of the med bag that I've carried. Oh, I've really? been a paramedic for 27 years. So everyone kind of thinks this is new. It's not. Mm-hmm. It's not. The other thing to keep in mind is um, the Narcan will work if they still have a pulse, if they're still breathing a bit. If they've already gone into cardiac arrest, you can dump as much Narcan as you want into them, and it's not going to change it. You have to go to the standard start CPR, manage the airway, do the kind of things that we would do for anybody else that's in cardiac arrest. So to say that someone could be brought back from the dead is a little bit too dramatic? Touch. It's pretty close, and it certainly looks that way. Um, when you wake someone up that's breathing one or two or three or four times a minute, and all of a sudden they sit up and take a big breath and go, what what happened? Um, it's pretty interesting to watch. Dolphin County was one of several counties that sued pharmaceutical companies that manufacture opioid painkillers. County Commissioner Jeff Haste joined us. We've hired uh, a law firm, uh, and they're well-known. Um, they're out of Philadelphia. Greg Heller is the the lead attorney from that that group. And we are in the um, uh, fact-finding segment, you know, where we're gathering the data. And what we are going to do is we're going to go after the manufacturer, and we're going to say, this is what your practice has cost us. This is what has been done in dollars, in lives, in damages to families. And we're going to go after those funds. Because we may not be able to bring anybody back, but we want to make sure that we're taking care of those in our community now. And the increase has gone up. It goes up every year greater than the dollars have the ability to pay. And we want to put those dollars back in the street. We want to get our community whole again, and they need to be at the table. Now, I noticed that uh, when you said pharmaceutical company, that it was singular. Do you have one company in mind? No, it's we don't. Um, there are a number that are being looked at. The suit will be done um, based upon the information that we gather, and the law firm is doing that now, and they have some very good preliminary information. Uh, now, you know, I, I think when we talk about this thing, uh, this this crisis that we're going through right now, there will be people who will say, well, you know what, Commissioner, uh, we understand where you're coming from, but the ma- manufacturers of opioid, the painkillers, they're not uh, making heroin. They are not forcing someone to stick a needle in their arm because, you know, it's it's worth a discussion of how this all kind of transpired. Started off a lot with opioid painkillers, went on to heroin. What do you say to someone like that? And, and you know, I guess there could be some truth in the fact that, the, in the, you know, they don't manufacture heroin, but they, they helped manufacture the addiction. It was the addiction. And it's time and time. You know, too many people hear this and they think, oh, it's the street user we're talking about. It is not. As the funeral director said, it crossed there. We've we've sat there and we've seen you know, scholars, you know, young men and young women who are uh, have great grade point averages in high school 
get ready to go do something. Something happens and they go to the doctor and they get an opioid and they get addicted to it. We have great athletes who have gone out there and had a knee injury or an ankle injury, something blowing them out, and they get addicted to it. We have older individuals. I know a person directly who used to work for the county, had cancer and then back surgery all at the same time. What did they give them? Opioids. What happened? He got addicted and could not get off of it. And then what happens is when somebody says, "Uh oh, we've got to pull back and we're not going to give them the opioid anymore, that craving doesn't go away. You know, and as someone said before, to me, I, I don't know why you can't just say the people just stop. I thought that was the answer. It's clear you can't. And so when the opioid stops, the prescription stops, the craving and the need and the demand does not go away. And and it's they're feeding it's really they're feeding the 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 pain that's caused. You know, it's hard to understand this, but in talking to addicts, it's not this. And someone brought up that it's not a high. You know, we keep saying they're getting high. It is not a high. It is it is a a way to feed and to deaden the pain that's been caused by the addiction, the withdrawal of the opioid. That that pain is so great that they need something to ease down that pain, and it gets stronger and stronger all the time. So they're feeding the pain. They're not getting high. Our guest during this portion of the show is Dauphin County Commissioner Jeff Haste. We're talking about a lawsuit that the county is uh, going to file against uh, opioid manufacturers. If you have a question or a comment, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532, or send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. You can leave a question or a comment on WITF Facebook page. On Twitter, we are at smarttalkwitf. Again, that phone number, 1-800-729-7532. So... As you have described, you you think that uh, the pharmaceutical companies have manufactured a product that has fed this addiction. But in what way? I mean, they were making a product that they're actually, I mean, a legal product that uh, there was a call for, that a lot of people, a lot of doctors were obviously prescribing it. People were saying, I, this 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 pain in my back, it won't go away. This knee injury, the pain is just horrible. Yes, I need something, and Tylenol is just not going to cut it. I need something more than, than this. So when what did they do? What did those pharmaceutical companies do that you feel is wrong? And, and let me just take a step back. There, there still is a legitimate need for opioids. Um, you know, end of life, you know, severe pain, things like that. I have reason to believe, and I've seen some some things that lead me to believe that not all, some folks in the manufacturing side of it knew the addictive nature of the opioids. They knew what this would do. And instead of trying to tweak that or, you know, I don't mean it this way, but dumb it down or do something else with it, they made a business decision to continue to try to market opioids. And not only just to those, but to grow their market. And and I understand they're in business and what they need. And, you know, there's uh, on some of these aspects, and we, we can't forget pharmaceutical companies do a ton of research that ends up being very good for us. And it's not those good ethical folks we're after. It's the ones who made a decision to put dollars and business over top of lives. And there are, I've seen some things, and I have some belief that there are some companies out there that did that. And those are the folks that we want to do it. They helped grow this addiction when it did not need to be grown. And they are not at the table now. The rest of us, taxpayers, first responders, police officers, everyone, families are paying that price. We need them at the table to help solve the problem. 
And something I also want to point out, uh, we've had you and your colleagues on the program before talking about the challenges that, that counties are facing. This is where, on the county level, this is where many of the services are delivered. Absolutely. And so when you're trying to recruit, recruit some of this money, it's because it is cutting into your budget, right? And let me put that in perspective. You know, in uh, from June of 2016 to July of 17, Dauphin County spent $19.6 million to help 2,859 people suffering from addiction. And those numbers mark an 860% increase in treatment dollars from 2013 to that time frame and a 400% increase in the number of folks that were addicted and needing help in that time frame. Those do- those percentages, those numbers far exceed anybody's budget, anybody's ability to pay. And so what happens is it's still the most critical need. And what it does is it, it takes services away from other folks or they don't get serviced. And it, it is adding to the problem. And we've got to find a way to stop it. It's not fair for the taxpayer to try to address this. It is, it is fair that the opioid manufacturers who help create this addiction come to the table and help pay it. They need to be a partner in this. An 860% increase from when? From 2012, the, the 2012 year to the 2016-17 year. And how much money? $19.2 million. How much of that was budgeted directly for this? That's a question I don't know the answer off the top of my head, but I can tell you it's not that full amount. Every single year, we're 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 trying to scramble and find more money for this. And folks, by the way, we're talking about <clears throat> Dauphin County because they're filing the suit, but every county in our listening area is going through the same thing. So just uh, think about that. Let's go to Rod in Lancaster County. Rod, you're on the air. Hi, how you doing? I'm, I'm doing a well. Pharmacist. And I have over 40 years behind the counter. This is not a new problem. As long as there have been controlled substances, there have been abusers, misusers, overusers, um, manipulators, doctor shoppers. I agree that the pharmaceutical manufacturers, who I personally hate, did a terrific job of promoting the use of narcotics to prescribing physicians and made pharmacists a compliant part of that. I do not agree that the pharmaceutical manufacturers are responsible for the heroin users. Anybody who sticks a needle in his arm with a poisonous substance knows what they're in, what they are in for. They know that it leads to death. I, I think that the use of uh, Narcan multiple times on the same people for overdose is just a waste of taxpayer dollars. Okay. One time and done. Rod, thank you very much for your call. Commissioner? And, and he's correct. As we said before, they did not cause the heroin, but they caused the addiction that drove someone to the heroin. And, you know, and I've talked to somebody, and it's easy to sit there and say, you know, they know when they put that needle in, it's death. But when you're talking to someone who is in, and it's, again, I'm not a user, I'm not, I don't have an addiction issue, so uh, it's hard to understand. But talking to those who have it, that craving to kill the pain from the withdrawal from the prescribed opioid is so great, they're willing to take that chance to put that pain away. Um, and, 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 you know, on the Narcan side, 
You know, my colleague George Hartwick says this many times, and I think he's got a good point. You know, when somebody says that about it once and done, you know, we unfortunately don't say that to the diabetic when we when we see them eating another donut or something like that. We don't say, you get one donut, you can't go have another one. I mean, it's it's very, you know, that's very easy to say by some folks until you start talking to the families and you start talking to people in, in their face. We know in the addiction world, we know that the, the addict on, on, on any given day, no matter what the addiction is, is going to fail at least three times. Those that recover fail at least three times. You know, you know. I don't know we can put a number on the Narcan. Let me take another call here from Bethany in Harrisburg. Bethany, you're on the air. Hello. Hi. Hi. Actually, it's Bethany, but that's okay. Okay. With an uh, S. Okay. So here's, here's the deal. I'm going to talk really fast. I'm a prescriber. I'm a new prescriber. But my um, experience has been when I was a nurse on the floor, we had one nurse found in the back of his car with a needle in his arm. We had one um, nurse hang himself due to um, many issues, but also he was using pain meds. So then I go from there to um, a rehab place where I see all kinds of people. I had one patient who um, actually was um, a, uh, a person who helped people with um, addictions, and in between her stops, she would go and score and shoot up. That's why she was there. There is never too much Narcan use. I agree completely with the diabetic um, example. People are killing themselves, period, in America, slowly and quickly. And I don't think we can put um, a value on that in terms of, sorry, dude, you used it too many times. You can't. That's the first thing. second thing is heroin has the highest recidivism rate of any drug anywhere. And once you talk to somebody who is a user, regardless of how they got there, you know that there are very many levels to their pain. It has, and you, you have, if, if this guy who said Narcan once and done knew a heroin addict, he would understand that that's not an appropriate statement. Hey, I'm almost out of time. Go ahead. Thank, I'm almost out of time. Thank you very much for your call. Commissioner, we only have about a, a minute left. I mean, you can uh, follow up on what Stephanie had to say. Uh, but overall, what are you looking for here? Again, we're just trying to get the pharmaceutical companies, the manufacturers at the table to help solve this problem. Uh, I, I truly believe uh, that we will solve the problem. You know, I've seen a tremendous amount of commitment from law enforcement, from our social workers, from families who, as, as the funeral director said, who are now speaking out and saying, this is why my son or daughter died. And, you know, putting it out there so we can talk about and have this public discussion. I think we'll beat it, but we need the manufacturers at the table to help fund it. Real quick, uh, Dauphin County is not alone in doing this, right? No. In fact, I've talked to colleagues all around the nation. We're hoping this becomes a nationwide, much like the tobacco settlement issue was. We want to make it into a nationwide settlement so that everybody wins in this. In our final segment on opioids and heroin, we discuss recovery. Kristen Varner is Director of Training and Advocacy for the Race Project, as well as a Certified Recovery Specialist. And Mike Krafik is a Certified Recovery Specialist and Supervisor with the Armstrong, Indiana, and Clarion Drug and Alcohol Commission. Welcome to both of you. Thank you. Hi, thank you. If you have a question or a comment about recovery, about treatment, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532, or send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. You know, we hear so much about the opioid crisis and the large number of people who are dying of overdoses. But what about those in treatment and recovery? During this time when more people are using opioids, 
Are more people being treated and in recovery as well? Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, especially with the uh, innovation or the emergence of medication, uh, we are reaching a whole new population that would not have been reached before through um you know, through getting them into treatment and then into recovery. And what we really like to look at it, you know, when we talk about medication is medication-assisted recovery and pushing them into the recovery process. Um, and, I, and I know as a, the emergence of other programs through the Health Choices Program, there's been so many more resources for individuals um, to get them into recovery, such as recovery centers and, you know, recovery specialists, which Mike and I both are. So there's a lot of programs, um, but I think that what we deal with is the stigma of, you know, getting into recovery because we don't talk about that too often. So I appreciate the, the chance to talk about it this morning. Uh, both of you are in recovery, and something that, uh, Kristen, that, that you said is, that is so important, that it is a lifelong thing. You, you're, you're not cured, that for the rest of your your life, you'll be recovering. Uh, Mike, tell me about uh, about you. I mean, what are you recovering from, and what do you have to deal with on a daily basis? Well, sure. I am recovering from a variety of substances. I mean, at the end of my addiction, heroin was my drug of choice, but I started out with marijuana and alcohol, experimented with a variety of substances leading up to the first point in where I tried heroin, and then it really, my life um, kind of decomposed from that point on. And we were talking about county funding for uninsured individuals earlier. Um, the agency that I actually work for now sent me to treatment, paid to send me to treatment multiple times. I actually was, went to an inpatient rehab facility nine times between 2002 and then when I finally found and sustained recovery in 2008. Um, during that time was revived with naloxone five times. Um, so for me, my recovery was a process to where I would go to treatment and kind of do well for a little while and slip back into some old patterns or, or behaviors for one reason or another, would relapse and need to go back to treatment. Uh, and I see that is similar for a lot of the people that I work with, is that it's a process. Some people do get it the first time, but a lot of times um, they, there's some trial and error there, and they really need to figure out what's going to work for them. You, first of all, congratulations on uh, on your your recovery. Uh, how long have you been in recovery? April twenty fourth, two thousand eight. Okay, so, so it's been a few. This April, it'll be ten years. I, I actually hate to ask this question, but I mean, someone who is in recovery, are you are you ever tempted? So, I mean, in doing the kind of work that I do, I get to meet and work with people that are in active addiction or in early recovery. And I know for me, I consider myself fortunate in that. And it really helps me stay grounded and remember where I came from. Uh, and it's very important, particularly for recovery specialists that are working with and helping people find and sustain recovery, that they stay connected to their own recovery program. So I, I really need to stay grounded and remember uh, where I came from. As far as temptations, I, I just, it, not the way I, I was in early recovery. I'd say in the first year, it, it was tough and, as I would describe, a struggle. Um, after that, to this point, it's been more of maintenance and, and maintaining the progress that I've made so far. Are there stages of recovery? I, I think so. 
Yeah, so early recovery and then that stabilization period and then really looking at the maintenance phase where you're just maintaining the work that you've put into that point. Kristen, what about you? Well, um, you know, like everything Mike said, I, I, you know, it sounded like my story. But, yes, I uh, entered into recovery on September 2nd, 2005. And um, just like Mike, I started with marijuana and alcohol. I progressed um, not knowing. I, I didn't know about the genetic predisposition. I didn't know that it, it ran in families, that if you have someone in your family, you're more likely to carry on that genetic predisposition, and all you have to do is add a drug to it. Um, so, you know, I was a college graduate. I, um, you know, after college, I had a series of good jobs, and then I kind of declined into multiple bartending jobs, and the culmination was really in 2004 and 2005, where I spent over a year in and out of different treatment centers, different bartending jobs, and it was really... Um, you know, I, I received life-saving treatment through Cumberland County Drug and Alcohol Commission where, you know, my parents were spending money, you know, thousands of dollars getting me into treatment. I didn't have insurance, and we found out about the Drug and Alcohol Commission, and they gave me the, the treatment that I needed. I was in treatment for about, I would say, a total of five or six months. And when I was in treatment the last time, and I, and I don't say that the other treatment centers didn't work, what didn't work for me was I was never willing to apply what they told me. And I think that for a lot of us that are in recovery or, or in active addiction, we think that our way works, you know. And I had to really get down to the, to the fact that my way got me addicted and my way got me, ended me up in multiple treatment centers. Mm. So I had to change my thinking. Well. Um, yeah. Well, I was, I was going to say congratulations to you, Kristen, and and, and both of you, because I don't know. Over the years, run into so many people who now their jobs, their careers, are helping other people who have a substance problem, and have become so dedicated. So congratulations and uh, on on all your career and uh, your recovery as well. So we've been talking a lot about the uh, counties. And, you know, one of the things when you talk about uh, county government and these commissions that you've been affiliated with, that, uh, you know, they get, a lot of the money comes from the state. All the time we are talking about budgets. We are talking about tight dollars. At the same time, we have an opioid crisis where there are more and more people who need treatment, uh, who, who do want to recover, maybe don't have it. You know, finally, they will admit that they do need to recover. So let's talk about that and the money needed and how it actually happens that counties are, that uh, recovery programs are going through counties. Sure. If I could, could start off with that, um, you know, it, every dollar spent on addiction treatment saves at least $7 in criminal justice costs. And then you just can multiply that when you add in the savings and health care costs. Whenever somebody finds recovery, not only do they oftentimes stop getting arrested or quitting committing crimes to support their addiction, uh, but they also become productive members of society. In 2008, I was on Medicaid. I lived in public housing. I was being funded or supported by one form or another, some sort of county or community program. Uh, in 2012, I bought my own home. I'm full-time employed. I'm married with three children. I pay taxes. I give back to my community. So looking at sort of the economic payoff and the investment that the county made into my treatment and recovery process 
I, I don't, it's really even hard to quantify sort of the return on that investment. Question mm. um, one, I only have about 30 seconds left. Oh, sure. What are the biggest challenges you're facing right now? I will say it's always stigma. It's stigma. Um, that, that's always going to be my <laughs> biggest challenge. Thank you for joining us for the top stories of 2017 on Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar.